in every circumstance this morning, we proclaim that you are good. You are good in our suffering. You are good in our failures. You are good when we are perplexed and don't understand. Lord, you are always good. And God, this morning we want to get to the place where we don't have to understand. We don't have to understand to trust you. We don't have to understand to obey you. But because you've shown us enough of your goodness, because you've shown us that you're willing to send your son into this hell-ridden world and that he would offer himself up for sinners like us, Lord, that that would be enough that we would say, God, whatever you have to say, our answer is yes, because you're a good God. You're a good king. But Lord, we come in here this morning knowing that there's distance between where we want to be and where we are. There's distance between fully trusting you and where we are right now. And so we pray you'd use your word in our lives to close the gap. Lord, use your word in our lives to draw us into a deeper trust, a deeper obedience. God, align our hearts to yours. As King David prayed, give us a willing spirit. God, we believe this morning that you will never let us down. We believe that you are utterly faithful. And so right now, we just ask through your word that you would set our gaze upon your son Jesus, that in fixing our eyes on him, we might be refreshed, that we might find rest, that we we might be encouraged, Lord, that we might find hope. Meet us here in this place. God, work in our hearts powerfully in this time. In Jesus' precious holy name we pray and worship. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, as you're taking a seat, I want to go ahead and invite you to open your Bible out to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 1, the very first chapter of the New Testament. Uh, last week we worked through the first five verses, mainly talking about the life of Abraham. And this week we're going to pick up right where we left off and read verses 6 through 17. Matthew chapter 1, 6 through 17. If you have a Bible, follow along. If not, it should be on the screen for you to read along as well. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 
14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, This morning, the sermon is based on names, and that might seem odd at first, uh, but these names tell stories. Uh, For example, if we were to get a list of the presidents of the United States, and we were just to read off that list, there might be some that are more familiar than others, but each of those names tell a story. Each of those names come kind of with a package deal attached to them. Uh, The list of names that we've read here, almost all of them can be found in the Old Testament, And what makes these names especially unique for our time together this morning is that these are names of kings. These are names of kings. And through the list of these kings, we we both see what kings are supposed to be and what kings are supposed to do, and we see how each of these kings, in their own way, utterly failed. Uh, a few months ago, I was over with our kids' ministry, and at the end of the time, you know, we did one of those things where it's sort of a ask-any-question-you-want time, you know, with the kids. And uh, one of the sweet little girls that was there that, that morning uh, raised her hand, and, and she just asked very innocently, why are there so many lists of names in the Bible? And I don't remember exactly how I answered the question at that point, but, you know, if I could go back and answer her question again, this is what I would say. The reason that there are so many lists of names in the Bible is because they represent so much failure. See, one of the most important projects of this Bible is to trace a promise that God had promised that he was going to send a king into this world, and that king was going to be the king of kings. He was going to be, going to be a king who would reign forever. He was going to be a king who would restore this broken humanity. But name after name after name after name We are presented with failure after failure after failure after failure. And so these names trace a promise that up until this point had not been kept, had not been fulfilled. Uh, This year, for my birthday, my birthday back in July, somebody gave me an awesome card, a card that really uh, spoke to me, one I'll never forget. This is, what I, this is what I opened up on my birthday. It says, Once upon a time, a very special person was born who was destined to change the world. Calm down. It's not you. It's Jesus. I think, he, I think he'd want you to have, have a happy birthday, though. Matthew's genealogy, this list of names, are, is given to us to show us that not only is it not me, it's not you, it's not any of these people, but all of history points to one person, one name, one king, who would be the king of kings. And guys, that's what Christmas is really about. That failure after failure after failure, finally, a son was born into the world who is the promised king, who is the one who would redeem humanity, who is the one who would restore all that was broken in the world. That's what Christmas is about. And that son, that king, his name is Jesus. And he's the one we're celebrating here today. Uh, But we have to ask this question, right? Why is it that you and I need a king of all things? Why do we need a king? Well, let's just take a brief assessment of the place that we find ourselves in the world currently. Wouldn't you say that in our our world today, corruption reigns? 
that there's all sorts of behind-the-scenes shady things going on, that people are using uh, shameful ways to get ahead in life, to get more for themselves, to prop themselves up the, up the rung. And wouldn't you say that we live in a world where foolishness reigns? <laughs> Amen is right. Financial foolishness, moral foolishness, fill-in-the-blank foolishness, and that's what you see. And wouldn't you agree that we live in a world in which lawlessness reigns? That what's said in the book of Judges could be written over us, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah. And when you have a world in which corruption reigns, in which foolishness reigns, in which lawlessness reigns, what do you have? You have a, a world in which fatigue reigns, chaos. We're weary, we're tired. Tired of trying to create our own identity. Trying to, to, tired of trying to craft our own truth. Tired of trying to prove our existence. Tired of trying to figure out what in the world we are supposed to be doing with our lives. And it is into that tired and weary world that Jesus Christ broke in. That a king, the king that we need, a king who could give rest a king who could bring wisdom, a king who could lead with goodness, arise to restore all that is broken. And so that's why Matthew takes the time to chart through Jesus's royal lineage. He wants to both show us that Jesus is the one, he is that king, but also as we unpack kind of one package after another, as we unpack the names of who these people are and what their story is, we also see why it is that it is Jesus alone who could be the king that we need. Why it is that Jesus alone could be the king of kings. And so this is what we're going to do today. We're going to unpack just six of these names and look at a little bit of their stories and as we look at their stories, we're going to see six characteristics of what you and I need in a king. And then we're going to see how Jesus meets every single one of those needs. So first this morning, we need a king who will represent with perfection. We need a king who will represent with perfection. Now, the first and most prominent king throughout all the Bible and, and also in Matthew's genealogy is King David. Uh, verse 6, we get a sense of this. When uh, Matthew writes this in verse 6, he says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king, the king, the, the only one in this whole list who gets that phrase attached to his name, David, the king. Uh, the reason why is because David was kind of their hero. David was like the, the guy that they all looked up to. He was the one who God had made the promise and said, I'm going to establish your throne and there's going to be one of your descendants who's going to sit on your throne, who's going to reign forever and ever and ever. But then the second half of verse 6 says this, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David, Israel's hero. He was their guy. And yet Matthew adds in this list the worst and most shameful act that David committed. As the king, he used his power to take Uriah's wife, sleep with her. She got pregnant, and instead of David owning up to it and dealing with it, 
he had Uriah killed. This is David the king, their, their national hero. Uh, Israel's kings, like all kings, represented Israel. Right? This is always true of political figures, you know, figureheads, kings, presidents. The, the actions that they perform represent the people that they lead. And this was true of David as well. I think we understand this idea of representation more than we realize. Uh, every couple years, right, we had the same old conversation. Every time we go into the pres- presidential election, we realize that our individual votes aren't actually what elect a president. And that's why you can win the presidency but lose the popular vote. Why is that? Because we work on a system of representation that you and I go in and we actually vote for somebody to then go and vote on our behalf for the president. And that's how this, that representation works. But here's another way to think of it. Uh, maybe you've seen some of these reality TV shows where it's sort of like a team game or whatever. I've, I'm a big fan of Survivor, maybe Amazing Race, other ones, where for a particular puzzle or a particular uh, game, one person has to serve as a representative for the whole team. And if the one person gets the puzzle right, then their team wins. But if the one person gets the puzzle wrong, then their team, their team loses. It's one person acting, living, doing on behalf of the whole. And that is how Israel's kings worked. But it was even more important because not only did Israel's kings represent them just like any sort of politician might for us, Israel's kings represented Israel to God. Their obedience or disobedience was on behalf of the whole nation. And that is the problem with David. Guys, we can learn a lot from David. We can learn how to worship from David. We can learn what it looks like to have a heart uh, that that runs after God. We can see a lot of good qualities in David, but what David cannot do is David cannot be our representative. In fact, David needed his great-great-great-great-grandson Jesus to be his representative. It's this idea of representation that makes the announcement that Jesus is king good news. Because anyone who submits to Jesus gets Jesus as their representative. Jesus stands in their place. Jesus is the one who stands on their behalf before God. And here's the deal, guys. Uh, I have an advantage as a pastor. I both know the shame in my own life of the times that I've rebelled against God and all the times that I've hurt other people, but I'm also privy to hearing a lot of other people's stories, people who share with me those things about their lives that they're most deep, dark, ashamed of. And this is what I've learned over the years. There is nothing that you could tell me that you have done in your life that would shock or surprise me. Why is that? First of all, because I know me and I'm embarrassed of me. But also, I have gotten to know enough outwardly respectable people in my life to believe the Bible when it says in Ephesians 2, 3, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, guys, Jesus, King Jesus, he was born into this world to be a perfect representative that anyone this morning who would submit to King Jesus gets to hide behind him. As it says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Our king is the righteous one who happily, willingly, gladly represents unrighteous ones. So what does it mean to submit to King Jesus as our representative? If representative, it means letting go of our own performance and embracing Jesus' performance. It means those shameful things in the past that, that lurk and linger. Guys, if we have put our trust in Jesus, His perfect righteousness covers everything. That is the good news of having Jesus as our representative king. Uh, second this morning, we need a king who will judge with wisdom. We need a king who will judge with wisdom. Uh, David's son, mentioned in verses 6 and 7, was Solomon. Solomon's known as a wise guy, but here's the problem with Solomon. Solomon was wise in his public life, but he was kind of an idiot in his private life. I just want to read a little bit to you about Solomon's biography. In 1 Kings 11, verses 1 to 3, this is what the Bible says about Solomon. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods." Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Yikes. And then in 2 Chronicles 9, 27 and 28, this is what it says about Solomon. Here's a little bit more about Solomon, King Solomon. It says, And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephala. And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all the land. So here's the three things I want, I want you to key in on. The wives, the horses, and the silver. Now, listen carefully. There were very minimal instructions in the book of Deuteronomy when God gave the law to Israel about the kings. But I want you to hear what God said specifically. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, 16, and 17, this was the minimal instructions that God gave for the kings of Israel. This is what he said. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Check. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Check. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Check. 
Solomon might have been wise in his public life, but he was an idiot. He was dummy in his private life. Why? Because point by point by point, he turned away from God's wisdom and went the way of the wisdom of this world. And it ruined his life. Uh, Recently at our house, we've had a little ant problem. So what do you do if you have an ant problem? It's actually annoying. But you just go and you buy these little ant bait things, and uh, you know, the ants come in, and they, they just come for dinner, you know? And they just eat to their heart's de- desire, thinking that they're just getting the best meal of their life, but all along the way, they're actually being led to their death. Why do ants do this? Well, ants do this because they're dumb. All they do is just, they just follow their instincts. They just go with their cravings right on to their death. But let's be honest. Are we so much different? The wisdom of the world says, just go with your gut. You know, follow your instincts. If, if you want something, go for it. And we follow our instincts right into our demise. See, the wisdom of this world, it's not, it's not hard to identify when we realize this. That though there are a thousand different versions of it, it always looks like one thing. It always looks like putting the self at the center of the universe. And that's why you can have a religious version of the wisdom of the world, and you can have a non-religious version of the wisdom of the world. You can have the emotional therapy version of the wisdom of the world, and you can have the stoic and measured version of the wisdom of the world. Why? Because All of the different thousands of iterations of the wisdom of the world always point us to the resources of self. But then Christmas happens. King Jesus arrives. And just like King David needed his future son, King Jesus, to represent him, King Solomon needed his future great-great-great-grandson to teach him what a wise life really looked like. King Jesus arrived, and King Jesus breaks down through the wisdom of this world. King Jesus brings wisdom from heaven and teaches us how to live on this earth. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, it tells us that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this is what it means if we're going to submit to King Jesus and find a life of wisdom, we need to unlearn some things. Those patterns that have been formed in our lives because we've just been following our instincts. We've just been following our cravings. Those things in our life, we actually have to unlearn. And then we have to like remember that the, the wisdom of Jesus grates against the wisdom of this world. Guys, Solomon just went for it. He just followed his instincts. He just went with his gut. He just did exactly what every other king in the history of the world had, has always ever done. And guess where it led him? To destruction. And that is exactly where the wisdom of the world will lead us as well. Jesus is offering us his wisdom from heaven to have a life of joy, a life of rest. Oh, man. You know, I guess at some point you get to the place where you have to say, okay, there's so much foolishness everywhere. Wouldn't I want to receive with open arms God's gift of wisdom from heaven. 
wouldn't I be ready to just say, yo, I've tried it and it's not working. And all these other people that are trying to tell me how it gets done, it's not working for them either. And then Jesus comes in with something radically different. So maybe today we would just commit. We don't have all the details. We don't have all the answers, but we would just commit at base level, Jesus, we want to follow your wisdom. Third this morning, we need a king who will strengthen with goodness. We need a king who will strengthen with goodness. When the Bible moves from Solomon to his son Rehoboam, uh, the people, the people of Israel come to Rehoboam and make an interesting request. I want to read a little bit for you from 2 Chronicles chapter 10. Uh, this is verse 4 of that chapter. It says this. It says, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So what are they saying? They're basically saying, hey, Solomon, your dad, like he was a harsh king. He was hard on us. He was a slave master to us. But Rehoboam, if you will lighten up a little bit, if you will treat us with goodness, then we will serve you with respect. Sounds like a, I think it sounds like a fair deal, right? But this is what we read in verse 14. This is Rehoboam's response. He replies, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Kings are supposed to strengthen their people. Kings are supposed to care for their people. Kings are supposed to order life so that their people can flourish. But Rehoboam did the exact opposite. Rehoboam exacted from his people. He put harsh and heavy burdens upon his people, which is why Rehoboam, just like David needed Jesus, just like Solomon needed Jesus, Rehoboam needed the humility of King Jesus. Uh, it's this image of a yoke, this image of a yoke, that connects Rehoboam to Jesus. What is a yoke? A yoke is this thing, a heavy thing that you put on an animal so that the animal no longer has control over where it's going, but instead someone that's driving now has control over where the animal will go. Uh, now, if I'm being really honest with you guys, I have never actually driven a large animal like that with a yoke, uh, but what I have done is I have walked a dog. And I feel like walking a dog is pretty similar. You put the harness around the dog, and you attach the leash to the dog, and yes, the dog is now restricted, but the dog is also protected. The dog loses some of its rights, but what it gets in return is a, a loving master who actually is smarter and, and understands what it needs to survive. The only dog that I've ever really spent much time walking would not have made it very far if it did not get walked on a leash. So with this backdrop of this yoke imagery from Rehoboam in our minds, listen to what King Jesus has to say to us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. King Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
Rehoboam exacts from his people, but Jesus gives to his people. Rehoboam, out of pride and pomp, puffs out his chest to try to prove his strength. But Jesus, out of his gentleness and his kindness, he opens up his heart and he shows us his utter goodness. Jesus is saying to us this morning, if you keep trying to handle the leash on your own life, you will continue to be weary. You will continue to heap up burdens on yourself. You will continue to try to manage your life, which is something you weren't made to do. But if you hand your leash, the leash of your life to me, I will protect you. I will guide you. I will give you rest that in me you will find the peace that your soul desperately longs for. Uh, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, I want to recommend that book to you, Gentle and Lowly. Consider maybe a Christmas gift to yourself this year. Uh, pastor and author Dane Ortland writes this, commenting on this passage. He says, consider what Jesus is saying. A yoke is a heavy crossbar laid on oxen to force them to drag farming equipment through the field. Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid on his disciples is a non-yoke, for it is a yoke of kindness. Who could resist this? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver only to hear him shout back sputtering, no way, not me. This is hard enough drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. Becoming a Christian is submitting. Becoming a Christian is surrendering to Jesus. But in submitting to Jesus' authority, in submitting to his yoke, in submitting to his leash, we actually find life. We actually find rest. That we don't have to fear giving up control of our lives to Jesus because he is altogether good. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's kind. We don't have to be afraid of his rule. Fourth this morning, we need a king who will fight with honor. We need a king who will fight with honor. So at this point, we followed along through David to Solomon and then his son Rehoboam, but we're going to skip a few generations now. Uh, down in verse 8, we're going to pick up with a guy named Uzziah, a king named Uzziah. We learn in 2 Chronicles 26 that Uzziah was a mighty warrior. I want to read a little bit about his biography to you in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 5 to 8. This is what it says about Uzziah. It says, He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabne and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and against the Munites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Right? One of the things that kings are supposed to do is they're supposed to fight for their people. They're supposed to lead the people out in battle. They are supposed to create a place of safety and security on behalf of their people. And at first, it seems like Uzziah is doing a pretty good job. It seems like when he was seeking the Lord, he became this great, mighty warrior that Israel needed. But then in verse 16 of that same chapter, this is what it says. 
But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Uzziah, this mighty warrior who went out and did all these awesome things for Israel, what he didn't realize is that there was a deeper battle going on in his life. There was a more important battle going on for his heart. And while Uzziah might have been this mighty warrior who accomplished many things in his life, he failed at the point of the fight of faith. And that is why Uzziah, just like King David needed his future son Jesus, just like Solomon needed his future son Jesus, just like Rehoboam needed his future great-great-grandson Jesus, Uzziah needed his great-great-great-grandson Jesus to be his victory. Uh, The first step in fighting this deeper battle, these spiritual battles, is to acknowledge who the real enemy is. Uh, Maybe you've been in a situation uh, like I've been in before where you find that you're mad at somebody or you're frustrated with somebody. Maybe it only lasts a little while. Maybe it lasts for a a good amount of time only to find out later that they weren't actually the person who did the thing that you were mad at them about. I uh, can't tell you how many times I've gone to grab my keys and they're not where I thought they were. And so I say, Allie, where'd you put my keys? And she says, I don't know. And just about the time that I'm really about to get into it with her about how I hate when she moves my keys, I come around the corner and I see them exactly where I left them. Guys, we know life is hard. We realize that there are obstacles. We know it feels to us like there are enemies, but so many times we have the wrong enemy in mind. We think we're fighting these big battles in our life against all these bad people. (laughs) When really, there's a deeper, more important battle going on inside of us. And that is the one that Jesus came to win. Only Jesus, this son, this king who was born in Bethlehem, only Jesus could come to defeat our sin. Only Jesus could defeat Satan. Only Jesus could defeat death. Author Mitch Chase put it like this. He says, when, G- when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he too had come for conquest, though his conquering was not of earthly armies and cities. He performed signs and wonders against the power of darkness and the effects of the curse. He came to conquer demons, the devil, disease, and death. He came to exercise dominion, and nothing could resist his word. Winds ceased, demons left, sight returned, and death buckled. The king that you and I need must do better than provide for us national security. The king that you and I need must do better than help all of our dreams come true. The king that you and I need must be able to defeat death. And only Jesus could enter into a battle with death and come out victorious. Only Jesus could enter in to a battle with all of the deeper enemies that really can harm us and overcome them on our behalf. So what does it mean to submit to Jesus as our warrior king? Well, here's one of the things that it means. 
means that we need to stop panicking. Jesus went down into the grave. He arose victorious. And right now, he is seated at the right hand of God. Both the Bible and history prove that Jesus is conquering the world even at times when we think it is impossible, even at times when it seems most likely that Jesus is winning. He turns the tables and we look back and think, where did these billions of Christians come from? From a man who never left his little hometown? How did he conquer the world? Because even right now, he is the sovereign of the universe. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. And he is carrying out his victory. What is, what is our role in this? <laughs> Jesus is just carrying out a triumphal procession. You know what that is? It's like when a king conquers a city and then he just rides through the town waving, inviting anyone who would submit to him to join his victory. That is the phase of history that you and I find ourselves in. Jesus' triumphal procession. And that's why our, all we are as a church is an outpost of that triumphal procession saying, come rebels, <laughs> come rebels and submit. Find life under King Jesus. Find life under the one who is the only one who can actually conquer your worst enemies, your deepest enemies, the enemies that actually can take you down forever. And if Jesus is this champion, this warrior who fights our battles, and if Jesus is our representative who stands in our place. And if Jesus is gentle and lowly and invites us to take the yoke of his kindness upon us, then fifth this morning, we need a king who will command with authority. We need a king who will command with authority. This is where we tend to get lost. This is the nails on the chalkboard. Authority. Someone else telling us what to do with our lives. Someone else dictating where we live, how we live, what we say, what we do. And authority scares us to death because we have seen it done wrong so many times. But remember, this is Jesus we're talking about. That the king's hands that deliver the commands to us are the same king's hands that took the nails for us. One of Jesus' ancestors who had an interesting relationship to God's authority is a king named Josiah that you see there in verse 10. Josiah was a very young boy when he became king. So by the time he was 25, he had already been reigning for 18 years. And when he was 25, this is what happened to Josiah. I'm going to read you a little piece of 2 Chronicles 34, 14 to 19. It says, While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the, the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants, they are doing, 
They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. And here's the part I want you to key in on. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Josiah realized that he had been the king of Israel for 18 years, trying to rule them without God's law. He had been leading them in the wrong direction for 18 years. And Josiah knew, just like we ought to learn, that authority is actually a good thing when it is good authority. Um, here, here's how I picture what happened to Josiah. I'm sure you guys have been down to you know, one of these cities, maybe Charleston or Savannah, where they have these little tight streets. And you just can't go to one of these places very long without accidentally realizing that you've turned the wrong way down a one-way street. You know, you make that turn, and your first clue is that all the parked cars are heading in the other direction. And then next thing you know, you start to panic. You realize that not only are you headed in the wrong direction, but it's your fault. And that's exactly what happened to Josiah. He realized that he had been leading Israel the wrong way down a one-way street. They were headed for disaster, and it was their fault. But here's the deal, guys. No one in Charleston looks at the signs that say one way only and say, that is so repressive. How dare they tell me where to drive? No, because the signs are there to help everyone flourish. The laws are there to help us experience life, not to take life. The laws are there so that we don't crash. And God's good authority is for our good because it shows us where the one-way streets are. It shows us how to not wreck our lives. And so King Jesus is born into this world. And yes, guys, King Jesus comes with commands. King Jesus comes with authority. King Jesus tells us that we must obey him. But when we obey him, we're obeying the one who also washed his disciples' feet. We're obeying the one who also laid down his life for us. We're obeying the one who, when he opened up his heart, taught us that he is gentle and lowly. That we can submit to him knowing that when we submit, we're actually going in the right direction, even if we don't understand yet. Here's what submitting to King Jesus' authority means. Submitting to King Jesus' authority means... That when we say yes to Jesus and submit to him, we don't say, yes, Jesus, I want your authority except in this one area that doesn't make sense to me. Or, yes, Jesus, I want your authority except in this one area that just doesn't quite fit with my life. No, when we come to Jesus, we say, Jesus, command me. You are my Lord. I bow before you. I'm not here to try to make your commands fit into my life. I am here to submit my life to your commands because I believe that in you is life, and in you is goodness, 
in you is the only true good authority that this world has ever known. And so when we submit to King Jesus, we're obeying the one who is willing to die for us and the one who knows what's best for us. Finally today, we need a king who will lead with resolve. We need a king who will lead with resolve. Earlier this year, we preached through the book of Ezra. And uh, it's another book of the Bible, by the way, that has lots and lots of names, lots and lots of lists of names. Um, Zerubbabel, who's in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in verse 12 and 13. Zerubbabel is one of the main characters in the book of Ezra. And his job as the king leader was to galvanize the people, to stir up the people, to rebuild God's temple. And he starts off really well. He starts off getting everybody together, and they start building. They lay the foundation, and they, they start working together as a team to build this thing. But then this is what we read in Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. We read that there's some opposition. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. As kings are supposed to lead their people, kings are supposed to enter in when everybody else is discouraged, when everybody else feels like there's no way, kings are supposed to enter in and lift everyone's spirits to move people in the right direction, to mobilize their people, to keep going, keep pressing. But Zerubbabel cracks under pressure when they get a little bit of opposition from the people around them. He slumps back and he disobeys God. And for 20 years, Zerubbabel fails to lead the people to rebuild God's, God's temple. You know, as I think about Zerubbabel, um, if I'm honest, I, I think of myself. I think of so many pictures of our lives that I've seen play out time and time and time again. You know, where maybe we start off so well. Maybe we have some resolution. Maybe we have some goal. Maybe we have some idea of what God's called us to do. And for about five minutes, we are pumped up about it. We are committed. This is the time. This time, I'm going to follow through. This time, I'm going to persevere. This time, I'm going to endure. And then a few months later, we look back and think, what happened? What went wrong? Well, the reason we shrink back is, if we're just being honest, we're, we're just not as strong as we think we are. Uh, there's a scene in a movie that I watched for probably the 10th time this week. We've been watching Home Alone on repeat uh, in our house. Uh, there's a scene in this movie that I've you know, seen a lot, and um, after like the fifth or sixth time seeing it, uh, it just felt like it was a really good picture of, of how we are sometimes. You know, Kevin, the boy, is home alone, and at some point he kind of feels like he's getting over his fears. You know, he feels like he's mustering up the courage, like, okay, maybe I can do this home alone thing, you know, by myself. So he comes walking out of his house, and he says, you know, the snow, it's a little dark outside, and, you know, he, he looks up to the sky, and he says, hey, I'm not afraid anymore. You hear that? I'm not afraid anymore. But about the time that last word comes out of his mouth, a shadow crosses his face. The camera pans, and it's his scary neighbor holding the shovel. 
And then the, the, the scene shifts, and Kevin's running back into the house. He darts in the door, goes up the stairs, and without even taking his shoes off, he jumps under the covers of his parents' bed. Guys, that's us. We think, this is the time. I'm over my fears. I'm going to conquer this time. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to make it through this time. And then the thing that we're scared of, the thing that gets us every time, it pops back into our life, and we, we shrink back again. We lose confidence. We cower again in the face of discouragement. But at Christmas, King Jesus arrived. And just like King Jesus is the representative that King David needed, just like King Jesus is the wisdom that King Solomon needed, just like King Jesus is the humility that Rehoboam needed, just like King Jesus is the victory that Uzziah needed, just like King Jesus is the king that all kings have needed. King Jesus is the king that Zerubbabel and you and I need, the king who can look death in the face and not flinch. I love one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Luke 9, verse 51. It gives us a sense of who Jesus was and how he knew what he was coming for. Luke 9:51 says, "When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem." As Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. Jesus knew that when he got to Jerusalem, he was going to be treated like an awful criminal. He was going to be arrested, falsely accused, spit on, slapped, beaten, mocked, stripped naked, and nailed to a cross. Jesus knew that he was going to hang from his hands and from his feet and that he was going to suffocate to death. And he knew it, he knew it full well. And yet, the Bible tells us he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why? The Bible tells us for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. That it was out of love for saving his people. It was out of love for rescuing his bride. That King Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and he went knowing full well what waited for him. So what does it mean for us to submit to this king, this king who is full of resolve, this king who is resilient, this king who keeps pressing forward? This is what it means, guys. That same passage is quoted in Hebrews 12. It tells us to fix our eyes on him. That the way you and I get resolved, the way you and I get steel in our backs, the way you and I keep pressing forward even after we've failed a million times is we put our eyes on him. And we believe that if we are on his side, we can't lose. If, we, if he is our king, then there's nothing that can stop us. And so we just keep picking our eyes up and putting our eyes on Jesus. We just keep picking our eyes up and putting our eyes on Jesus. And the same one who died for us, he gives us the courage to die with him. The same one who was spit on for us, gives us the courage to take the mocks and the slaps and the jabs with him. The same one who le leads us to heaven 
teaches us how to be pilgrims on our way to that eternal home with him. Uh, There's about 25 (coughs) genealogies in the Bible. I don't know about you, I feel like that's a lot. Uh, That's a lot of one genre to appear again and again and again. These lists, a long list of names over and over and over 25 times. But then finally, when we get to the genealogy that has Jesus at the end, there are no more genealogies in the Bible. Jesus is the one. He is the king of all the kings. He is the one that all the kings before him and all the kings after him need. He is the one, and there is no other. He fulfills God's promise, and he leads us safe to be at home with him forever. So, this morning, if you're a rebel, (laughs) you're invited to submit and find life in his name. And if you're a citizen, then let's fix our eyes on him and fix our eyes on him and fix our eyes on him again and again and again. Once upon a time, a very special person was born who was destined to change the world. Calm down. It's not you. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I, probably foremost in this room today, need to remember that Jesus is the king. That he is the one who does for me what I cannot do for myself. That he is my perfect representative. That his commands are for my good. That his wisdom leads me to life. Lord, all of that flesh in us that rejects your authority, we're praying to you this morning to overcome it. We're asking your Holy Spirit to do what King David prayed, to give us a willing spirit. God, move in our hearts so that we'll want to submit to King Jesus, that we'll be tired of following our own way and want to follow the way of Jesus. God, we need a king who can conquer death for us. And this morning, we are believing that that king is Jesus Christ. So in those gaps, in those places where we don't trust you enough, in those places where we're still scared to obey because we don't quite understand, Lord, would you close the gap? Would your Holy Spirit work through the good news of the kingdom of Jesus to lead us to fix our eyes on him, to lead us to follow him, to lead us to bow the knee and say, Jesus, wherever you lead, that's where we will go. God, thank you for sending us this precious gift in your son. We can never thank you enough. It's in Christ's name that we worship and pray.